Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Everybody, this is Greg Gutfeld. This is the one. I'm very excited to have this young man on my show. His name is Noah Rothman. He's got a great book out called Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. This is a topic we always talk about. By the way, Noah is associate editor at Commentary, very talented writer. Uh, you have a lot of fans here, a lot of people. Uh, obviously, Dana often Brings up, oh, Noah Rothman wrote this. Noah Ro- Rothman. I go, why don't you just shut up about Noah Rothman? That's what I say to her. Don't tell her that. <laughs> I, I appreciate this. Yeah. She's on the book jacket. She of helped me quite a bit. Is. I owe her of- many favors. Oh, what a bunch of log rolling. My <laughs> goodness. So this is a hard, okay. This is a hard book to turn in because it feels like you can keep writing a new chapter, right? Like, as you, because you're like, it's like, it's not like the story on the kind of like the abuses of the social justice movement just stops when you're done writing the first draft. Do you have to keep going back and adding things? Yeah. So in in the just world, there'll be a paperback edition, right? And then I'll get to add a whole bunch of stuff yes. to the forward. Um, I'm not sure that's going to happen, but yeah, I mean, part of the problem was knowing, you know, what to add and where to stop and what, what's really a, a big deal insofar as it um, is indicative of an ideological movement and an ideological trend. And what's just an anecdote right. that you should treat as an exactly. anecdote. Um, so I try to do that as to as much as, to, as much as I can. And that sort of comes to you know, a little existential quandary at the end of the book. Cause I go back and forth as to whether this is a trend line that is forcing America into a place that is antithetical to all the ideals of the founders, or some days I feel like it's just an, a fad. Well, it should be treated like a fad. Kind of when, um, a story you look into is based on three tweets you know, right. and you go and you go, well, it's not a story, but then you, it, but because it keeps happening over and over again, you go like, well, maybe it is, but I guess the first thing you should do for our listeners is you don't like the term social justice warriors. I what? I don't use the term social justice warriors because uh, it's a, it's, it's an offensive slur to people who believe in the ideals of social justice. And right. the idea of this book is to reach people who find a lot of these ideas attractive mm-hmm. and valuable and you know essential to the American experiment and convince them where it has gone wrong. What is the difference between social justice and justice? Hmm. Well, great question, huh? Do you think they important. didn't think I'd come up with that one on it's the fly? A, it is a core question. <laughs> um, Hayek dealt with this. Um, essentially, he said it, you append the word social. Salma anything. Hayek? Unfortunately not. <laughs> I the know. less attractive one. Uh, you append Friedrich, the word social. How do you social, say his first name? Friedrich? Uh, is it Friedrich? Friedrich Hayek? Friedrich Hayek? Yes. yes. Um, you append the word social into anything that destroys the meaning of the word it modifies. Right. So there is no such thing as social justice. Mm-hmm. There is only justice. Mm-hmm. To create social anything is to distort its meaning. And justice as we understand it, the kind of justice that's meted out in a courtroom, is predicated on the idea of an individual. The individual is responsible for his or her individual actions, not mm-hmm. that of individuals around them or uh, their ancestors. And that is not what social justice appeals to. Social justice appeals to a more tribal, collectivist understanding of what constitutes guilt mm-hmm. and tries to uh, reshape the justice system around those ideas in a way that is antithetical to English common law, undermines the foundational concepts of justice as we understand it, which is why it's so destructive to the American social experiment. Mm-hmm. It just, it seems 
and maybe it's supposed to seem to me because I'm a white male that it seems highly punitive. I mean, it it, is. It, it, I mean, it, it, it seems like an and like, but I think that almost anybody can see that it is pun- like there's a punitive aspect to it that must feel good. It's advocates would call yep. it a punitive yeah. uh, experiment uh, mm-hmm. d- designed to uh, convey to you the sort of paradigmatic understanding of where your guilt lies in a much more collectivist sense and a transcendent sense, tra- mm-hmm. transcending generations. I mean, it goes and. It, this is not just necessarily a theoretical like thought experiment. The foundational under reimagining of what justice is or should be is what underlined the intellectual uh, foundations for the experiment that resulted in the 2011 Dear Colleague letter from mm-hmm. the Education Department, which changed the guidelines around Title IX. Mm-hmm. The, the theorists around this felt that justice was too narrowly construed when it comes to things like sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And uh, concepts like forcing your accuser to confront the accused in a courtroom and evidentiary standards consistent with a violent crime, all that stuff was too traumatic for a victim, right. too excessive, and didn't really conceptualize what justice should be from a feminist perspective. So they got rid of all of that. Mm-hmm. And in the process, they deprived uh, accusers and accused of likes of their first, fifth, and sixth amendment rights. Mm-hmm. I mean, no conception of justice as we understand it in this country would call that justice. Right. But in the minds of a social justice advocate, it was a, it was designed to repair, it was reparative because mm-hmm. it reached back into history and transformed the things that we had been dealing with for so long that are so ingrained in our consciousness, we don't even think about them as injustices. Right. So what, uh, I mean, that, has been damaging, I think, to our country. Are there other areas that you uh, you believe social the social justice? Let's say the the social justice mob, the bad part of the social justice movement. What other areas do you think are damaging? I I, I think about just the rise of mob action online in general. It ha- seems to be something that is coming from this. It's combining Twitter and social justice to me has not been a good thing. No, absolutely not. I mean, that's a great vehicle for social justice advocates to really get you know, mobilize what you call a mob. And I think yep. it's, a, it's a apt description for what what occurs online. And would that it was only limited to online. It has been bleeding out into the real world and it often manifests in street violence, yes. uh, particularly among people who are so ingrained in identitarian philosophies, right and left. This book is mostly about the left, but not mm-hmm. exclusively. Unfortunately, right. there's these tendencies exhibited on the right of victimhood complex and a society that that it's contagious and a society that gives a kind of credence and and um, value to uh, a commercialized value to victimization, literally to the point where they're actually trying to sell you something. My favorite mm-hmm. anecdote in the book is the story of Fearless Girl. Mm-hmm. Fearless Girl was a statue. Right. Right. Yeah. The downtown lower Manhattan arms akimbo young teenage uh, yes. school age girl standing across from the Wall Street Bowl and it was feted by um, people on the left, primarily, who you would expect to fet it. You know, Bill de Blasio said it was very offensive towards men. It was very hard to find a man who was offended. (laughs) He was sure they were. Elizabeth Warren, um, Gail Collins in the New York Times said it was the most effective protest against patriarchy since the the protests in the antebellum New York that desegregated the trolleys. Amazing. Turns out this was a commercial, right, for a Wall Street investment (laughs) firm. So all people like Elizabeth Warren, who can't go two breaths without denouncing Wall Street greed, were were standing next to this commercial. Yeah, fantastic. And we found out why they were doing this. It wasn't long before there was a Department of uh, Labor audit, which found out they were systematically discriminating against their female and African-American employees. They settled to the tune of $5 million for all these employees who were disenfranchised. And that's why they were getting this. They were, you know... offering deference to these woke nostrums in order to get some indulgences from the social justice crowd. And they got them for a pittance. Every by the way, every company does this. It's the, I mean, obviously I know it's an overused phrase, virtue signaling, but it seems like every company's HR 
or their marketing or their corporate whatever are figuring out ways. Used to be like in the old days, it would be just a charity fun run. Remember? You know, it was quaint. <laughs> yeah, it was quaint. You know, you the five k for uh, whatever illness, right? Yeah, but it's so different now that you have to. It's, Illnesses it's like, are passe. Yeah, now generally, it's it's, it's um I, diversity identity um uh imbal- in inequalities like uh, and that's and it's like and you got to if you don't do it. I just wonder though, does it help if you get in if you're targeted by a mob? It, it no matter what you do, you're screwed. I think that that is just it's like it's. It's that uh, uh, the uh, what's that Rene Girard stuff? People get caught up in this mob stuff. It just feels good, and this is just a new way of doing it. I guess it's been around forever, right? But yeah. now it's just come back in a different shape. Yeah, this is Elias Canetti, and uh, mm-hmm. you know the just the psychology, the mass psychology of uh, of uh, crowds and mobs. And uh, yeah, there is a lizard brain that sort of takes over, and mm-hmm. it the sense of solidarity is is so transcendent that. It has to be an evolutionary trait, right? Yeah, so universal that yeah. ha- there has to be something here that is a survival mechanism, right? Um, so it's like fighting against the tide. I mean, I'm not going to say that yeah. this is an anti-identity politics book because that is commanding the tides to recede. Right. It is, however, to de- to demonstrate the excesses of this kind of behavior. Yeah, it's interesting. It's well, I mean, why from an evolutionary evolutionary standpoint, the mob protects you because you're part of it, right? And so a lot, so a lot of people, I think, on social media will join one of these like mobs because maybe it won't happen to them. It's like that famous, it's like the crocodile that eats you last, right? Still eats you. Um, but they're so powerless. There really is like a 72 hour window to these things. And if you, if you write it out, there's been, for example, companies, for example, the wall street journal had a report on this. They, studies have demonstrated that the, the firms that don't cater to this sort of thing do write it out. And there are very few financial consequences, but there's also financial value to acquiescing to the mob's demand, right, yeah. especially in a segmented marketplace, because you can generate more commercial activity as a result of that. Mm-hmm. You, even if you alienate a few customers in the process, you alienate, for example, your conservative customers by demonstrating your deference to it. You have a Macy's, for example, get, get rid of these plates, right? right that show you portion control. Doing that on the GG show. And they will, <laughs> and I guarantee you that there will be now a marketplace around that sort of thing. Just like there were, you know, the Nike got rid of flag shoes when they were never on the market. They were, yes. There was no outrage as a result of this. One person said they were outraged and they announced preemptively that right. there was a controversy around this thing. And then all of a sudden you have Republicans saying, I'm going to go find flag Flag shoes wherever they're available, yeah. and a marketplace sprung up out overnight for flag shoes. Exactly, it's the it's the rebel marketplace. Did you see the latest story? It's, it reminds me kind of of the plate story, uh, Forever Twenty One. Um, right. When they send so out that. products, they also send out free products for you to try with their clothing, and it was uh, Atkins protein bars or whatever. So I think it was Jezebel. Not sure. Might have been Jezebel wrote about like, oh, they're sending these bars. It's like weight shaming. Because they're health bars. It's like, actually, no, I think Forever 21 puts these Atkins bars in every box. But now they're, they're probably not. Because, you know, somebody said, right. my God, somebody who has, you know, issues with their weight. What are you telling them when they bring the, it's like the plate. Sure. You know. And there's some frivolity to this sort of activism. Yeah. But it is predicated on a real, um, valuable, in a way, and also a dominant sort of intellectual movement that's mm. prevalent on the left, but not exclusive to the left, 
uh, and a real valuable intellectual history. Uh, social justice, as we understand it, the first time we can use the phrase concomitant with its current meaning is mm -hmm. um, mid-19th century Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church was seeking a way to differentiate itself from the secular Protestant Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. Catholics had a very different experience with the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, so they were yeah. hostile towards it. Created an idea around charity, basically, that they called social justice. It was a Jesuit philosophy, and a few hundred, about a hundred years after that, um, uh, the philosopher John Rawls began to put a few more, a little bit more meat on these bones, and talked about justice as though we should think of it like it's a finite commodity mm -hmm. that it needs to be doled out and distributed so that you, based on your accidents of birth, have access to as much justice as the next person. Right. And the only way to do this is to create perfect institutions with enlightened distributors mm -hmm. operating behind what he called a veil of ignorance, so mm -hmm. that the distributor doesn't know who. The objects of his distribution are going to be can't satisfy his or her biases, whether they're known or unknown. Mm -hmm. Modern social justice advocates, to the extent they're even aware of John Rawls, yeah. reject John Rawls. Huh. They have no use for the veil of ignorance because right. it's morally obtuse. Yeah. How can you have a just distribution if you don't know who the objects of your distribution are going to be? Mm -hmm. Who's oppressed? Who deserves to somewhat come up and serve to be you know, tamped down a bit? I mean, this is the society that they're trying to engineer, which is very arbitrary and very rapacious. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, something that... Uh, inculcates in the people who believe this sort of thing a sort of venge a vengeful spite, which is psychologically damaging. Yeah. In part because American institutions are not designed to do the kind of things that they want them to do. Yeah. So you can have a very uh, a reaction to that that either makes you very depressed or resolved to radicalize. Yeah, and I you, and I think your point about social justice is well said. You don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's like po the politically correct movement. Politically, political, the political correct movement, maybe at the be at beginning was good. You know, it was, you know, don't be mean to other people. Don't be a jerk, right. Yeah, don't be a jerk. That's kind of where it should have, but it went, it, it went, it's so far beyond that to a point where almost any behavior can be deemed a, a microaggression, right? It's like, if you say, if I say, where are you from? Uh, that's a microaggression because I, you're suggesting that they're not from here or, or they're right. that, something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, political correctness, as we understood it in the 90s, is, is like uh, adorable. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. How did this – who started this whole frenzy? How did it go from – I'm assuming it happened on campus. How did it go from something that was so noble into something that's almost a farce? Yeah, so I think a lot of um, the radicalism that we see today, particularly on the left, but again is being more and more adopted by the elements on the right because it's so effective mm – -hmm. um, is due to the philosophy of intersectionality. I was going to get to that. Yeah, so yes. um, this started off as a pretty obscure theory on yeah. academic campuses in the late 19, 1980s, early 1990s, popularized, rather formalized by Kimberly Crenshaw Williams. And uh, it postulates essentially, and it's a pretty valuable thinking experiment, mm -hmm. um, postulates essentially that we are all born with disparate traits. Some traits are discriminated against more than others, and discrimination is therefore doled out in degrees. Mm -hmm. So you as a African-American male will experience less prejudice in your life than an African-American female right. because black women experience, women experience more prejudice than men, and therefore even though you're both African-American, women have the upper hand in the intersectional ladder. So right. on and so forth, the Native American lesbian has it really terrible. Know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yes. So from there is a way to understand how the world works. This is, again, a very valuable thought experiment. As a political philosophy and organizing principle, it's seriously deleterious to the actual organization in which you're in. Mm -hmm. And I cite the Women's March as an example. So Women's March, January 2017, arose out of nowhere. It was very sympathetic, totally organic. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew who was behind it, but the philosophers, but rather the organizers behind it, were adherents to this organizational theory of right. intersectionality. And so 
they did things that ended up destroying their movement. They embraced people with no political constituency. Right. People like uh, Joanne Chesimard, who's a cop killer, uh, yes. living, living a fugitive in Cuba. Cuba right. Um, the Reverend uh, Louis Farrakhan, Minister mm-hmm. Louis Farrakhan, who's an overt anti-Semite. Yeah. This was Linda Sarsour's a Linda kind of Sarsour, contribution. Linda Mallory. To, yeah. And getting, you know, having the sister soldier moment with these people would have yeah. cost them nothing. Probably would have gained them. So they would, they, cachet. Yeah, they, uh, in the Women's March, you couldn't be pro-life. That was like the group that was not. You, right. you, and I'm trying to figure out who else. And and there was a there was a scent of anti-Semitism. It's a brief scandal around the fact that the people around them who were white and Jewish mm. could not be allies in their entirety. Yeah. Because they were white and Jewish. They were, in the words of Tumika Mallory, they were advancing white supremacy. Whether they knew it or not, they could yeah. believe all the things that they believe. But by virtue of their skin color and their accidents of their birth, they could not be considered total allies. Democratic Party wrapped their arms around this organization in the beginning days, and they eventually had to divorce themselves. From yeah. It. So when I talk to college students about this who are 100 percent behind intersectionality, mm-hmm. I think it's a very empowering philosophy. I tell them about this and the extent to which this movement was disempowered mm-hmm. as a result of their embrace of this philosophy. They lost political currency because of the ideals they espoused. You know, um, and this reminds me of how intersectionality uh, and the belief that one cannot know someone else ends up destroying movements and positive products that would help a movement. Like I'm thinking of the Scarlett Johansson when she was supposed to play or she was going to play a trans. She's going to play a trans man or a trans woman. I can't remember. But the, the, there was the outcry. And she was, I think, producing this film. And there was an outcry among the activists that they should have the trans man play the trans man or the trans man. And, and so she said, oh, my, she freaked out. She said, I'm not allowed. She backed out. And then I, I'm pretty certain the film never got made. So in the in. So in order to some to, victory. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. It's it's like they got the scalp, but they lost the, the battle. So this is when I started thinking about this movement as sort of a self-destructive passing fad. Right. Because and there's a lot on this on Chapter five, which is about the, the really mm. silly excesses of this movement um, where you you it's hard to avoid the conclusion that this movement is very focused on itself. Yes. And targeting people who already believe what they believe. <laughs> it's so true. Because those yeah. are the people who are most likely to genuflect and supplicate in deference to this mob. But it, you can never be an, it can, there's a c- competitive element to it within it. Right. So you have, so it's like between you, you have and to one me, up the next. Yeah. It's like, outrage. you don't, because we can't, we cannot empathize with each other. That's in, the, in an intersectional. If you keep drilling down into it, you and I cannot. Yes. And that means one of us has to be more intersectional than you. And so what, what you're saying, and I, I cut, sorry, I cut you off, mm. is that it's an internal kind of combustion. It's, it's going to just it's going to fold into itself. There's a lot of performance to it. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, like a, a sort of a tempered outrage that's really on the level commensurate with whatever the offense yes. for your local food truck has done to you. Yes. I mean, like that the level of offense you should take to that, that's not going to really move the needle. Yeah. So you definitely have to outdo the next guy in terms of outrage. I, I this is such a touchy subject, literally, for uh, a Fox News podcast. Have you been following the the waxing controversy. I am aware of it. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't even go there because then I will. Yeah, let's just say if you want to <laughs> read up on the waxing controversy, Google waxing controversy. It's like, it was, okay, trans woman. Okay, man who identifies as a woman but has all the male equipment is demanding that these, like, what would, would you call them cosmeticians? Cosmic, uh, I suppose so. I, I'm not sure what the, but they're to, to wax his, to give him a bikini wax 
But cosmetologists, I think that's uh, to give the trans person a waxing. But the women feel that this is not their this is not their way. And in fact, they feel that it's almost an assault on them to be forced to do this on uh, male genitalia. So you've got this weird world where it's like where one part of of of, of a of a political arena is actually kind of a, forcing something on women. There seems like there should be an existential intellectual conflict yeah. there between <laughs> inclusivity of the trans yeah. community yeah. and forcing a woman to engage in yeah. sexual related assault like behavior yeah. Yeah. that they're not uh, not not satisfied by. There there's actually a feminist movement, a branch within feminism that has run afoul of the intersectional left because it is very yep. hostile towards the idea of trans femininity yeah. and the, the intrusion of trans women, mm-hmm. uh, men who used to be men and are now women in traditional female arenas like sports, for right. example. Yeah. Um, and they have a very conflictual relationship with the feminists. Yeah, I mean, Martina Navratilova has run right. into that and, and – you know, she's been outspoken, but then she gets she get she's very careful about it. But she's I think she's talked about that. You know, it, it, that brings me to I want to I want to finish up on this because I know that I, I get so I get distracted by these. There's so many of these interesting cases we're talking about. Like we just talked about Martina. Just, the, the big problem with the social let's say let's call the social justice movement hysteria, not social justice and in the intersectionality and the microaggression, the, the mobbery. People don't want to share the risk. It's like it, you if like if you if you see somebody that you know that is getting targeted, you realize that if you go to that person's defense, you're next. You're next. And so you have to sit there and you go, well, maybe this won't this will only last 72 hours. It does. It yeah. does. <laughs> yes, it does. It usually does. Yeah. So that's why I you know, you don't have to feel that quandary, that moral quandary. <laughs> I do if no, they're strong got, enough. I think that you have to at the at the I'm going to say end of the day a banned phrase you have to be willing to share the risk because if you don't the mom, the mob's going to get you anyway right and I think the more people that are willing to do that I, I do I was also going to bring up another because the weapon the weapon in this kind of climate is the smear you're a racist you're a sexist you're a bigot what I've noticed is maybe it's the lawsuits it's what happened to Gawker or what happened what the Covington kids are doing. Um, what's the bakery next to the school that was, remember they, uh, was it a bakery that had ejected some students for shoplifting, but they said it was, they were racially pro. Oh yes. Yeah. 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 I can't think of the I name. I mean, either. I, the school, how, what, what, I can't remember the name of the school, but anyway, this they, is all the stuff that goes in the forward. This yeah, happens yeah, literally yeah. <laughs> in the months that are yes. the three months, four months that have elapsed since I published this. Thing. Yeah. And so they sued the school that I think it was a bakery was, or it was a deli sued the school for millions in one. And I'm beginning to think that. We are we are looking into a correction. I think we're seeing a correction, and the correction is when all of a sudden there's skin in the game. That if I decide that I'm going to smear you, Noah, the skin is you can sue me. And we, it's not like it's not like an opinion anymore. It's like no, you've hurt me. Like I've hurt you, so you can sue me. So the Covington kids, the bakery. Um, I'm looking at like and, and, I, and to some extent, I look at Peter Thiel, what Peter Thiel did to Gawker. All right. Uh, was, I mean, I don't know how you, like, I have mixed feelings because I, you know, I even wrote for Gawker, but, you know, they became scalp hunters and, yep. and it was, oh, and I run, I had run-ins with them about it, regarding me. And I'm like, why you, why, why me? And I, because I had gone to Fox obviously, but, um, I think that now that there's some kind of skin in this game that you, that the scalpers could get 
targeted. Well, there's certainly less less deference to the social justice mob because they've they've demonstrated themselves. I mean, the the, the existence of the 72 hour window that we all talk about now is a demonstration of how little actual authority they have on their own that you don't grant them. Right. To be tormented by this requires a certain amount of complicity on the part of the tormented. Mm-hmm. Um, you can outlast it. Uh, sometimes it, it sometimes that, that, that seems superficial because sometimes yeah. it, it is unnecessary on the part of you get pressure from employers, you get pressure from social uh, social conventions to, uh, to I ban. don't want to apologize to them and that and that is doesn't the, usually help but and but what happens if you're working at a company all right and their company says hey look noah um we need to get this passed we need to get past this mm-hmm. it'll be over we just need you to read this thing or we want you know to post this say that you didn't mean it and you have to make a choice it's like a little a, i think a part of you dies <laughs> right? Part of you dies but you keep your job you keep your job but a part of you dies and, um, you know, because everybody, I mean, look, the left and the right do this. The left looks for a scalp and the, and they, and they, and they get it. And somebody, when, when somebody has to apologize right. and something just happened with a comedian, uh, I won't give it was something about a joke about a dead rapper. Did you follow this? Yeah, I, did. I saw that on again, Twitter. See, these, the only reason why I would ever see anything like so that is it came across Twitter. It's so I, it's so funny. Cause I was, you know, I'm, I'm wrote a book proposal that is kind of, it's 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 like all this, but I'm going like you know what? It's just like maybe it's just there's just it's so many that I would never ever finish writing this book. It seems like every day there's just like it's. I wrote a book a while ago called Joy of Hate, and it was like it came out too early. It was in twenty twelve. Ahead of the curve. I was ahead of the curve. I was ahead of the hate. Yeah, the biggest um, I think part of the problem with or the reason why we have a backlash now that is being actually gaining traction is because the right has adopted a lot of these tactics. Yeah, now because, now, now people don't like it. Well, <laughs> they've, they've they've discovered yeah that this actually does cut both ways. Yeah, and in part because and I say this in the book to the to the chagrin of a lot of my conservative readers, but I do think the president played a big part mm-hmm. in normalizing the kind of behavior that uh, is very similar to the social justice left, adding currency to a victimization narrative, uh, creating the, the belief in and instilling the belief in a set of the electorate that your actions were not the response, your lot was not the result of your actions, that people in positions of power, unseen authorities that put obstacles before you were exploiting you, and this was a system of justice that was mm-hmm. not just and needed to be dismantled. Mm-hmm. You heard that in the in the the notion that uh, it was all you know the the unofficial slogan of the Trumpian right in 2015 was "burn it all down." You saw that on Twitter all the time. I think you know I I you see that now in people like Cory Booker mm-hmm. who say that the system needs to be dismantled. Oh, yeah. yeah, he just said that the other day. That is burn it all down. Yeah, but you know I, the other thing though, but see Trump was such a Democrat. He was a Democrat then. He was a Republican. I think it was just outsiderism. For when, like I that I kind of missed. I think I missed the boat. By the way, I'm editing everything you just said out of this podcast. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> but but I do. Fair. I mean, I I think fair, I, fair. I I think to your point, um, the victim the victimhood thing was because they felt that they had been told they were bad for so long that they like I'm tired of being told that I, I'm the reason every every I'm the reason. Why there's so much, so many problems in this world because of who I am, and I think that was like, and I think Trump was kind of maybe putting, putting uh, that 
you know, encapsulates like there's a grain of truth to it. There's yeah. more than a grain of truth to the notion that African Americans, Hispanics in this country, LGBT members have have been actually discriminated yes. against historically and currently. Yeah. yeah. And as a result, they feel aggrieved and want to pursue that grievance. That's true. Mm-hmm. The philosophy that imbues you with a kind of victimization narrative and then a, and then results in currency from that victimization from perceiving yourself to be victimized and creating mm-hmm. rewards for that behavior will be get more behavior. It becomes a marketplace. It's right. supply and demand. And now all of a sudden we have this huge demand for victimization and everybody's shocked that we have a glut of supply yeah it's true uh we'd even get to smollett maybe next time noah no uh great book you you do great work i always enjoy your writing uh and uh um follow him on twitter as well you are at noah c rothman yes and you and also you can get him at commentary and his book is called unjust social justice and the unmaking of america i like how I, i try not to look down when i'm reading it as if i'm on tv it's a freaking podcast, Gutfeld. Also, you have great hair. I didn't notice that. You have very good hair. Thanks so much. I, I just, you know, as I get older, I know I just get, I have hair envy. Did I just do a microaggression? My producer's <laughs> shaking to say, you're not supposed to comment on people's appearance. Yes, you know I am. We can go in the genetics about it, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know the what? Jewish Irish genetics that resulted in this quaff. Well, let's get Charles Murray in here. We're going to do a <laughs> uh, th- uh, a three way blo- uh, podcast. Okay, Noah, thank you so much, and good best of luck with the book. Thank you, sir.